Welcome to this week's edition of Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Uh, This week we continue with the third of a four-part series on the provincial economies in Atlantic Canada. We focus on uh, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, like most of the region, has been underperforming uh, in terms of the economy compared to the rest of the country. If you look at the numbers going back to uh, just before the uh, Great Recession of 2009, um, Nova Scotia's average 1.1% real GDP growth over that period of time. That compares to 1.8% for the country overall. So with those numbers, it just means that Nova Scotia becomes a smaller part of the economy in Canada every year. And, the, you know, we've been asking the question, why does this region have to underperform um, the economy uh, elsewhere in Canada? And we already know from our previous discussion with Wade McLaughlin that PEI has led the country in economic growth over the same period at 2%. And a lot of that, as we've discussed, David, has been due to population growth. Yeah, that's right. There's something about that Great Recession. It really was a pivot point. New Brunswick, ironically, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia didn't actually fall into recession, but we were part of the whole economic malaise in Canada. And But coming out of that, these two provinces did not do that well. PEI boomed. And of course, Newfoundland and Labrador, there was some good years and some bad years because of uh, what was going on in the oil sector. So yeah, there's something going on. I think it has a lot to do with uh, the tightening of the labor market. After the 2008, 2009, 2010, we started to get the demographic trends. But for whatever reason, and we've been discussing that in this podcast, these two provinces in particular have struggled, uh, and we want to figure out how to make it better. Yeah, so, you know, we're all about the numbers. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that I've been following for some time are employment trends in Atlantic Canada, looking at the number of full-time jobs, number of part-time jobs, number of total jobs. And uh, prior to the... Uh, Great Recession in 2008 was the point that I looked at the, the trend over the last 12 years or so. And it's interesting, up until only about, uh, I would say, around 2018, the number of full-time jobs uh, in Nova Scotia has been flat for that entire period. Uh, so, it, you know, as I recently uh, discussed in a column for the newspapers, our economic development efforts have really been you know, underwhelming is the term I use for the newspapers because it's all about whether or not you're creating jobs. And and certainly for the period up until about 2018, we had no new net jobs to speak of in Nova Scotia for that entire period. Now, that sense improved a bit over the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of that can be attributed, I think, to uh, Halifax specifically and, and, and in particular, uh, the growth in the population over the last three or four years. And as we're, as we've been talking about over the last number of podcasts that we've had, population growth is key to economic growth. And in fact, it seems like based on uh, the model of PEI, it creates economic growth. A growing population creates economic growth. Um, and, uh, but nonetheless, the, the growth has been very weak up until only recently. Now, we've seen some signs uh, 
in at least Nova Scotia and I think New Brunswick a little bit as well. Certainly PEI, uh, that uh, population growth is uh, driving job creation in each of those provinces. Uh, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, there's been the opposite. There's been shrinking population and they've had absolutely no net new jobs in that province since prior to the Great Recession. So, you know, it, it's different across the across the region right now. Yes, but a statistic that will uh, hearten your soul uh, is is related to immigrants in the labor force. So Stats Canada tracks that at a provincial level, not at a not at a metro level, but at a provincial level. Just in the last year, between 2019 and 2020, there are 7,400 more immigrants in the Nova Scotia workforce, uh, and there are 4,500 more immigrants in the New Brunswick workforce. So that is a really good trend. If you look at Nova Scotia going, <clears throat> excuse me, going back five years, there's now 16,000 more immigrants in the workforce. But the number of people born in Canada in the Nova Scotia workforce has dropped by 12,500 over the same period. So we've got a little positive boost. But at least the newcomer participation in the workforce has actually offset the number that have dropped out of the workforce uh, through retirements or for whatever reason. So I think that's a trend we've been tracking, as you're, you are absolutely right. It started in PEI, uh, but we saw green shoots in both New Brunswick and Nova Scotia before COVID-19. And even in the COVID-19 year, we saw a big increase in the number of immigrants in the workforce. So hopefully that portends for a positive, uh, a, a positive uh, uh, outcome in the future. And certainly we know uh, from the demographics and <clears throat> the aging of the population as more baby boomers exit the workplace uh, across the region, there are not enough people living in the region to replace them. That's why immigration is so important to not just maintaining the current level of economic activity, but allowing the region to grow the economy in each of the four provinces. And we're seeing early, early evidence of success across the maritime provinces, at least uh, the same is not true in Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, David, one of the things that I'm concerned about, and this is, this is something that I'm going to ask our guests on today's podcast, uh, Scott Bryson, is what can we do to more evenly share economic prosperity across the province? So in, um, in Nova Scotia, uh, as you know, uh, about 47% of the population uh, is centered in Halifax, 47%, nearly half. And it represents nearly 55% of the regional GDP for Nova Scotia. And unless there's some efforts to make other areas of the province more prosperous economically, I don't see anything but a continuation of the growth of Halifax in terms of both population and um, this, you know, the percentage of the economy going ahead. So, you know, what can we do? And this is a this is the same for each of the other four Atlantic provinces. What can we do to distribute more evenly population growth and economic uh, prosperity across across the region? Well, Don, I'm glad you've got religion. I thought you were a, a, a Halifax or bust kind of guy in the past, and it's good to see. Uh, no, that's, I'm, I'm kidding. I know you've already always had a, a hub strategy, which 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 was province wide. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the fundamental question. I think our largest urban centers are on a good path right now. 
Um, that's not to say they shouldn't continue that. They absolutely should. I wouldn't suggest we take our, you know, sort of take growth out of Halifax and give it to the rest of the province. But I do think that we need to have a focus on on what does it really mean now in this new environment. So if you go back 20, 30 years, most of the labor force uh, growth in places like Yarmouth and Amherst and the rest of the province, even Cape Breton, uh, was mostly internal. It came from other parts of the province and through natural population growth. And now that that's fundamentally changing. So how do you attract people to work, live and work in Yarmouth and in Digby? And that has to be answered. That question has to be answered. Uh, and then what are those economic opportunities that are going to drive growth? Is it going to be more mining, more agriculture, more forestry? One of my challenges specifically with Nova Scotia is the decline in natural resources GDP. So it's been more precipitous the fall in Nova Scotia than most other provinces. Of course, we lost the offshore natural gas sector in Nova Scotia. Uh, we The forestry sector is significantly reduced in terms of its GDP impact. So and those are, you know, mostly rural industries, right? So what's going on with agriculture and mining and other natural resource-based industries? There's a lot of pushback against uh, aquaculture in certain parts of Nova Scotia, even though, uh, you know, the World uh, Health, uh, Food, Health and Food Organization has said that agriculture or aquaculture is fundamental uh, to providing the world's protein moving forward. So we've got a lot of challenges and I'll be interested to see how your your guest, Scott Bryson, today uh, uh, addresses them. Well, just to also to uh, talk about some positive things that are happening. Um, as you know, um, there's a fair amount of uh, tech development going on, like elsewhere in the region. Volta Labs has been um, an incubator for a lot of new uh, tech companies. That seems to be gaining traction. The um, Ocean Supercluster is really starting to, you know, gain some uh, traction as well. We hope to have a future podcast to deal with specifically with this uh, one cluster because of it, its spillover impact for the whole region. So there are some good uh, other things that are starting to replace what you would call the natural resource sector, um, which is maybe part of the answer. Yeah, I think that's right. But again, that then you've got this urban-rural thing. And I, I, I do, uh, I'm doing some work in Cape Breton these days, and I do think it's very interesting. I don't even think most Nova Scotians would realize that Cape Breton, the CBRM, is the second largest municipality in the Maritimes. It's larger than Moncton. It's larger than Fredericton. It's larger than Charlottetown in terms of population as a municipality. So I don't think we think urban center when we think Cape Breton. But I think moving forward, the second largest urban center in the Maritimes needs to be part of Nova Scotia's growth plan. So what are we going to do with Cape Breton? So I think there's, yeah, there's lots of interesting things going on. And even in rural Nova Scotia, you'll see interesting things going on as well. But fundamentally, we got to get the population growth back on the right trajectory across the province. And we've got to have a new generation of industries and economic opportunities in these rural areas. Uh, or they will suffer. And I think Halifax, as you indicated, will thrive the ocean supercluster and, and Volta and that little cluster of, uh, of um, economic activity is, uh, is really, really, uh, really, really uh, successful, not only in the Atlantic Canada context, but nationally as well. So just a few more numbers. Uh, population, as we talked about, is really important. It's, it's very uneven, the growth in um, Nova Scotia, as it is elsewhere. 
um, across the region. Halifax had um, population growth since the last census of uh, over 8%. Um, it represented over 90% of the population growth in the province uh, during that period of time. You just talked about Sydney. Uh, in the previous census, uh, Sydney had lost over 3% of its population over the previous five years. The good news is, is it was up a tiny bit in the last four years. And interesting enough, uh, a lot of that had to do with the uh, University of Cape Breton, uh, who has a large contingent of foreign uh, students, uh, many of them who uh, decided uh, upon graduation that they wanted to stay in Cape Breton. And I think we talked about this before. I was involved in a fairly large study a number of years ago that indicated that uh, immigrants studying in uh, Atlantic Canada had a high interest in staying in Atlantic Canada and more importantly, staying in the communities where they had been educated. So it represents a big opportunity for every community with a post-secondary institution to retain uh, foreign students as permanent uh, uh, citizens. Um, but you're right, uh, Sydney is, a, is an area that uh, is in a, in a bit of a rebirth. There's some good things happening out there. And really, uh, I think we should focus on Sydney because I think it's a story of uh, of a revival and renewal that uh, maybe after you finish your project, we can get into it a little bit more. Yeah, I think we could certainly do a, a whole podcast on what's going on and CBRM and some of the exciting opportunities uh, there. So the... Your discussion with Scott Bryson today, he's now heading up this new Nova Scotia Economic Growth Council. I'm excited to hear what you and he will be talking about. Um, I saw in the press release that, you know, the goal here is to make Nova Scotia Canada's startup capital. And that will be very, very uh, interesting to see because, of course, there's lots of areas around the country, Montreal, Waterloo, Toronto, other places that are vying for that role, the best place in Canada for startup companies. So it'll be interesting to see how Bryson positions that and what kind of policies and tax environment and HR activities uh, will be needed. Now, as you said, with Volta and so on, there, there really already is a very interesting cluster of startups. But that's quite ambition, quite ambitious to make yourself, to want to position yourself as Canada's startup capital. Well, I think Scott is a good choice to be chair of that council. Uh, as you know, uh, his uh, his uh, experience in the private sector was in uh, um, in banking, investment banking. So <laughs> that's a good place to start, I guess, in terms of looking for capital. Uh, and and of course, uh, he, you know, he is a he's a really interesting fellow all on his own uh, because of his uh, political uh, career, which was pretty. Uh, significant, uh, the most senior minister for Atlantic Canada. I, I wanna, I'll be asking him about what he was trying to do when he was in that position for us, and uh, that might be interesting. But, you know, um, I think that uh, it, it, the conversation with Scott uh, will be uh, revealing on a lot of levels, so I think we should get into that discussion now. So here's Scott Bryson. Scott has had a long and illustrious political career and is now the Vice Chairman of Investment and Corporate Banking at BMO, as well as the Chancellor of, the, of Dalhousie University. He was also recently appointed by Premier Ian Rankin as Chair of the Economic Growth Council for the province. Scott, welcome to our podcast. Delighted to join you, Don. 
Scott, before diving into Nova Scotia's economic challenges and opportunities, let, let's start by uh, getting a better understanding of your background, how you got into politics, and perhaps your life since leaving politics. You were in the investment banking business industry before entering politics. What got you into politics in the first place? Well, to make a difference, uh, from a very early age, uh, growing up in rural Nova Scotia in Chevrolet, Hans County, um, I was drawn to two things. One was business. My family were in small business and, uh, and, and sort of multi-generationally in small business. And uh, my father ended up, after he sold his grocery store, becoming a stockbroker and was until uh, for about 40 years until he was 82, he worked in the industry. And that gave me an interest in finances as, as well. But what really caught my eye and attention very early was politics. And my, some of my family were involved in the PC party. And I ended up uh, being in the Somerville Fire Hall at the age of 11, listening to a Ron Russell riding, uh, Ron Russell rally rather, uh, for John Buchanan's first election in 1978. And I don't know what clicked for me, but it was something that drew me that I, I associated people in public life as people who were doing good things for um, to help people. I, and I, I just drew that conclusion very early. And I had the opportunity to work with, with a number of them who, who actually looked at it the same way. They wanted to help people. And I don't think there's any... Uh, seat uh, from which you can make more of a difference in, in people's lives uh, than in the elected office. I still believe that. And, uh, you know, now you're back into the uh, in the private sector world and uh, as vice chairman of uh, BMO, tell us a little bit about the, that role. Well, it's a great role. Uh, bank and organization to work with. Uh, I'm enjoying BMO Capital Markets very much. Uh, I love being back into the arena, uh, working with interesting companies, uh, helping uh, growth companies find the, the capital to uh, uh, you know, achieve their, their goals. I really like working with clean tech companies. It's a fascinating space. Um, Actually, I, I, I enjoy all industries, uh, and one of the things I really enjoy about working with BMO and BMO Capital Markets is it's very much ingrained in the culture uh, to have a sense of purpose that goes beyond the bottom line that you work uh, for the communities we serve, uh, our, our people, our, our team, uh, and we also work for the, the broader interests of society, and we find ways to do that. Uh, that's very consistent with the more recent trend of ESG, which I shouldn't really refer to it as a trend because I, I think it's here to stay and I, for some very good reasons. Um, and that's an area of my, my, my practice in investment banking at, at BMO Capital Markets that I really enjoy working with companies, in many cases, companies who have actually been walking the walk of ESG for a long time, family-owned companies, for instance, uh, to actually develop the narrative, the public narrative. Don, you and I both know there's a lot of family-controlled companies in Atlanta, Canada, that long before ESG became a thing, were just doing it. So it's interesting working with some of those companies 
for whom environmental, social, and governance is just ingrained in what they do, and working with them to, to develop a more public narrative for that, because they've never thought of that. And this is an age where today a lot of companies are kind of doing a lot of greenwashing and uh, to make it look like they're really active on the ESG front. Most companies, I think, are actually quite authentically focused on that. But we've got, particularly Atlanta Canada, particularly family-controlled companies that have been doing it for a long time, which is one of the keys to their success. Right. And we'll come back to your uh, your background in your new role as uh, as chair of the Economic Growth uh, Council in a second. Uh, you were initially a progressive conservative, as you mentioned, before uh, deciding to switch to the Liberal Party. Was it the move away from the progressive side of the Conservative Party when the PC and Reform parties merged that caused you to switch, or was there something else at play? That was the, the main uh, change that caused me to, to have to consider what I was going to do. when During the merger process with the Reform Party, I expressed publicly uh, some concerns uh, about where that would take the party socially. Uh, in, in 2002, I became the first openly gay uh, progressive conservative member of parliament. Um, and I, uh, at, at that time, uh, I, you know, I, I did so because I wanted to be open and honest about who I was. And, and uh, uh, I, 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 I uh, felt conflicted about any split between my private and personal, or rather my private and my, my public life. I wanted to be authentic and, and I just couldn't live any other way. So I did that. Um, when the merger discussions uh, advanced, uh, it was very obvious or became very obvious uh, based on pu public utterances of the Reform Party members on a number of issues uh, that we were on different pages. I actually talked to uh, Stephen Harper, or we met, we had dinner one night and we talked about some of those issues. He basically uh, told me, look, I want you to, to come with uh, the merger. I want you to work with us. I want you to be in, he said, on the front benches of my party working on economic issues. Uh, but you got to understand social conservatism is part of what we are and what we do. And on issues like same-sex marriage and other things, we're going to continue that. And, uh, you can be who you are. You can be part of our team, and we'd welcome you. But just remember our positioning on that, and and uh, you know, but you're still welcome. And I left that dinner. It was a very pleasant dinner. And I called Dale Palmiter, who's been my right-hand person for a long time, my my friend. I said, Dale, I, my problem is I I can't really run for a party. I hope doesn't form the government. And uh, at that time, I actually started to look at other things and started to look at getting out of politics. Uh, but I had also, over the years, formed quite a relationship with Paul Martin, uh, ironically, as his critic on the floor of the House of Commons. But sure. uh, we built, uh, actually, a very uh, respectful and constructive relationship. And one thing led to another. And uh, I was going to leave public life. Uh, a group of people convinced me to, to stay in it. And I basically came to the decision, Don, that 
if I were joining a political party at the age of 35, as opposed to the age of 11, when I was in that, <laughs> that uh, Somerville Fire Hall with Ron Russell and John Buchanan, if I were choosing a political party at the age of 35 based on who I knew I was then, uh, I would not be choosing the new merged Conservative Party. So in either case, I was joining a new party in either case. I chose to join one who reflected, uh, which reflected rather, uh, who I am, but also what I wanted to achieve uh, for my constituents in King's Hands and for my province in Nova Scotia and my region in Atlanta, Canada. And for those reasons, I made that decision. And the people of King's Hands um, endorsed that five times after. Um, I was elected five times as liberal after being elected twice as progressive conservative. And I think that had more to do with, um, I think I had a pretty good understanding of, of the citizens in my communities and, and a lot of respect for them. And uh, I think that, you know, that relationship helped me survive seven elections, but also build a, a really uh, a great understanding both ways. Uh, my constituents of me and me of my constituents. And I have profound respect for the citizens who gave me the opportunity to represent them and uh, still do. Uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, your last election, you had uh, the biggest majority in your life in that <laughs> riding, yeah. didn't you not? Uh, it was a, a major... Yes, uh, I think it's yeah, 71%. Um, but I, I've had some pretty tight elections too, uh, Don. We only talk about the big wins uh, <laughs> and like in, in, anything else. But I, I had some, uh, one particular or a couple really tight elections. But um, I, I, I do derive a sense of satisfaction that even leaving public life, I, I, I walked off the, the field on my own steam um, and I, I wasn't lifted off uh, by a helicopter in a body bag or, or airlifted to a hospital like a lot of people leaving the political arena. Um, and uh, I, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm pleased to have been given the opportunity to serve. Uh, I'll never, you know, to me, it's it's give, given the opportunity to to serve people is just uh, a wonderful gift. I never took it for granted and never will. And I have two seven-year-old daughters um, and I will encourage them both to consider public life at some point in their career. I won't demand it of them or expect it of them. Uh, but but I will certainly encourage it because I, I think we need good people in public life and and those of us with an option of what we do, uh, I think have a responsibility to at least consider it because um, government matters and good yes. people in public life can make a difference. They, I, I, I continue to believe that. Now, you were the uh, Nova Scotia and uh, I think Atlanta Canada's most influential minister during your time in the Trudeau cabinet uh, uh, as the president of the Treasury Board. Um, I think you were the first Nova Scotian to hold that position, if I'm not cor correct. Uh, um, can you talk about the initiatives that were most important to you uh, that you worked on for Nova Scotia and the region, uh, especially during the, the, the latter uh, part of your political career? 
I think the single initiative that I, I, I'm, I'm happiest with in some ways for one single initiative would be the Atlantic immigration pilot. And I, I derive a lot of satisfaction from that for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, it, it was part of the Atlantic growth strategy where we actually had four premiers working uh, together with the federal government to get things done. And uh, it, it, it's not easy getting the four Atlantic premiers to work together on something, Don. I mean, we talk a good line about, um, you know, working together, but I, I think we've got a lot of, uh, we, we've really got uh, a lot to do to get to the point where we are truly achieving our potential as a region, uh, cooperating, collaborating, and building together. But the Atlantic immigration pilot came about um, Dominic LeBlanc, who was one of my uh, partners or colleagues and ministers in, in the region, we worked very closely together on this, and John McCallum, who was Minister of Immigration, we, we were sitting one night in John's uh, apartment, uh, actually smoking cigars, which I shouldn't talk about that probably, but we were smoking cigars in, in his apartment, talking late at night about ideas for Atlantic Canada. And we, we talked to John about it and he said, it makes sense. We should try this. He then took it to his department and they said, this is a terrible thing. You can't do a pilot in a region. Uh, we'd have to do it in the whole, across the whole country. And we had this idea that geez, you know, this, this, let's, let's focus on labor market demands. Let's have this be employer driven and let's have an expedited process with higher numbers so we can bring people into Atlanta, Canada and they can build their futures and they would be coming with, with employment opportunities. And, and uh, so we, we had thought this through the minister, John McCallum agreed with us. His department was reluctant to do it on a regional basis, saying that the whole country will want this if, if we do this in one region. My response to that was, if, if it works, that's a good thing. And why wouldn't we try it in places like Northern Ontario or other places that are having a challenge attracting and retaining immigra immig immigrants? Anyway, we ended up pushing it. It worked. And it has, uh, it really was was timely because it enabled us to work with premiers like Premier McNeil, who was really focused on immigration. And we had a great partner. Uh, Lena Diab, as Minister of Immigration, uh, was, was uh, very enthusiastic about this. And we ended up actually moving the needle. And the lesson in that, and I think this applies to our province too, is government needs to be more agile. We need to actually try things. We get into analysis paralysis where, where public servants, officials, plus politicians want to get everything perfect. And we end up getting into this situation of ready, aim, 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 but nobody actually, you know, fires the pistol. And uh, uh, so I'm a big fan of not letting perfection be the enemy of the good, coming up with ideas, with with pe people and, and trying them. And that speaks to a broader approach that I'd like to see Nova Scotia uh, take uh, going forward, be a province where we embrace uh, new ideas, we try them, we experiment with public policy, and we should, Nova Scotia should aim to be the most agile 
public policy environment anywhere in North America. And I think we have the uh, underpinnings to do that. Well, you know, that uh, Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program uh, has already been talked about in our podcast on a number of occasions, including most recently with Wade McLaughlin. So it was a really important initiative uh, for this region. So I should have mentioned Wade McLaughlin as well. He was, uh, as a premier, was really ahead of the curve too on immigration. The other thing that, that's interesting, Don, is Provincial governments of all stripes, uh, going back to John Hamm, John Hamm is, is a progressive conservative, established the Office of Immigration. Uh, Daryl Dexter continued to focus on that. Um, and the Ivany report and the One Nova Scotia report in some ways uh, laid the, the intellectual foundation, um, which made it easier to advance this. So this was a multi-party um, effort that went over a, a period of time to really change Nova Scotians' minds about immigration. And I think that's one of the most important jobs a politician or a leader has, is that, changing people's minds. And uh, I think it took, it, 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 the, the timing for the Atlantic immigration pilot was really good because it came along after a lot of that uh, that uh, work had been done and the soil was ready and the sun was out and we uh, it was just it was the right timing for it uh, so it took a number of factors and several uh, governments yeah uh, now your appointment to the economic growth council was only relatively recent i think in april uh, tell us about the key mandate of the council Scott, the premier has been very clear when he when he called me about it. He uh, uh, the first thing I said to him, I said, "Well, premier, I I I don't really want to write another report or be part of a process writing another report because I think we have some excellent reports already, uh, and uh, from which we can learn and 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 take action." but I'd, I'd like to focus on specific actionable ideas. And he heartily endorsed that. Um, and, and the ideas in some ways fall into two categories, Don. Um, one is smart things we should be doing more of. And the second is dumb things we should do less of or stop doing. Uh, so ideas for growth, and the identification and elimination of irritants that hurt growth. It's pretty simple. Uh, and if you talk to business people across Nova Scotia, small businesses and large businesses, you will hear from them ideas in both categories. But they, they don't necessarily think anybody is going to listen. Uh, we aim to change that in this. And the group of people we have... Uh, assembled are loaded for bear uh, to make a difference. And, uh, you know, we have a wonderful group of people. And, uh, you know, Annette Fersheron, who, of course, a, a Kate Bretner, who has uh, helped 
lead Home Depot Canada and, and international business experience and most recently as a clean tech entrepreneur and Jen Wagner, uh, who is president of Carbon Cure, our uh, world leading clean tech uh, decarbonization company out of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Um, and a group of people, uh, Jevin McDonald, Jen, Jen, I mean, they're all, they're all terrific. And I, I know I, I, um, I, I should be speaking to each one of them, but they're all terrific and we're all focused um, on specific ideas. In fact, within a month, we presented to the premier a group of ideas focused on easing and streamlining regulatory burden. And the reason we focused on that first was that a lot of that uh, heavy lifting had been done previously uh, and ideas had come forward from business, but they hadn't been actioned yet. And we, we have uh, Fred Crooks as part of our team. And Fred is a pretty no-nonsense uh, fellow and, and uh, with experience both in, in government and, well, and also law and business. And, uh, you know, Fred is helping us navigate uh, the, the corridors of government uh, to make sure that what we come forward with uh, makes a difference. So, so a lot of the, some of the ideas we were able to bring forward quite quickly to the premier uh, had been ones that came most recently from businesses specifically. And the premier is looking at those now. We're looking forward to, uh, um, going to uh, uh, advancing those. Um, but we are also involved in recently, the premier asked us our view about a proposal that the uh, tie-ins um, Tourism Industry Nova Scotia, uh, uh, Industry Association of Nova Scotia brought forward to support tourism coming out of COVID into the reopening phase. And um, uh, we engaged some stakeholders, talked to people like Dennis Campbell, for whom I have huge respect. And, and uh, you may have seen an announcement yesterday uh, uh, for a program uh, on, uh, you know, to, to support tourism in Nova Scotia and our operators during the reopening phase. And that was something that uh, our council uh, dug into and contributed to as well. Right. <clears throat> I understand uh, that you've already made some, uh, a number of regulatory reg uh, recommendations uh, based on your early work with the council. What are the biggest economic challenges that you see uh, that uh, Nova Scotia faces? Well, uh, starting with the opportunity side, I, I, Don, and then if, if that's all right, and then uh, uh, on the opportunity side, I, I think that in some ways, COVID and the COVID impact, which is probably the most rapid uh, digital transformation that business and government has seen, uh, it would have taken a decade to achieve the digital transformation that small uh, businesses, large businesses and governments have been able to drive in the last year. And the reason it was possible to do that is that we had to, we had to be agile. Companies that would have taken a year to put out a 350 page RFP instead uh, 
bought off the shelf, adapted and and made it work. Well, that's there's a lesson to that in terms of how to do digital transformation. Um, but coming out of that, what none of us expected was the remote working impact of COVID to the extent that it has actually transformed uh, to a significant extent, in my view, how people work and live. Now, this is not the end of offices, let's be clear. This is not the end of business travel. Um, but there will be a hybrid of the way we work and live coming out of this, which very much benefits Nova Scotia. And we're seeing that as people vote with their feet and they are moving to and buying houses and, and, and building houses in Nova Scotia. Uh, now, and, and, what's, what, and, and what I find really exciting about this, and this gets to the, uh, the challenge too, Don, the great thing about this is that for 50 years, and I look, I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, Jerry Reagan and then John Buchanan, successive premiers, uh, talking about why people should come to Nova Scotia and build their futures in Nova Scotia and invest in Nova Scotia. And, and, and there, they had some very good reasons why people should do it. The problem is people didn't do it. And uh, it only happened in recent years that we really reversed that trend for a number of reasons, uh, including public policy around immigration and openness to immigration and growth. Um, but but the COVID impact actually turbocharged this. And so suddenly we had a situation, we have a situation where people from around the world and places like Toronto or New York or London or wherever want are really looking at coming to Nova Scotia and want to build their futures in Nova Scotia. And a few weeks ago, I posted an article from the Globe and Mail and another one from McLean's that was talking about this. It was a uh, there was a Toronto Star one as well about Nova Scotia uh, being the the place really uh, uh, to live and to work. And I thought these were great articles. Well, I was quite uh, uh, well. I shouldn't say surprised, but I, I received quite a bit of social media pushback on that people saying, this is very irresponsible of you to be pushing this at a time when, when our housing prices, at a time when, when our housing prices are uh, uh, being driven up by these outsiders coming in. And we don't need more people coming in from Ontario, buying houses in Nova Scotia and putting our price, house prices up. And my response to that, and I actually said this to somebody online politely, but uh, firmly in my view that you know there's two ways to look at this we you're, you're quite right that there is an issue of supply and demand so we could actively seek to discourage and dissuade people from moving to Nova Scotia and that's one idea or we could actually build more houses um, I prefer the latter um, and uh, which leads me to so I, I actually think the housing question right now, uh, is one of the biggest challenges we face on one hand, because if we don't move proactively uh, with a strategy to expand supply in Nova Scotia, I think that this will be an impediment to our growth uh, because if people, if citizens associate, if citizens associate uh, uh, newcomers and growth 
with uh, a negative impact on, on housing in their lives, we could lose the hard-won uh, social license that took successive premiers and federal governments to get from citizens uh, towards immigration and growth and in migration. So uh, I, I don't think we're there yet. I think that the support for in-migration and immigration is still there. But I really think it's important that Nova Scotia develop uh, uh, a housing as a strategic growth strat uh, uh, sector uh, strategies because, and, and I tell you where that comes from, Donna, a few, a few, a few weeks ago, uh, we do, I know Jim Balsley fairly well and have for a long time as he encouraged uh, him in a previous life to uh, invest in Bedford, Nova Scotia and, and move uh, research and motion employees uh, there and, and hire Nova Scotians uh, a long time ago. But I've kept in touch with him over the years. So I called him up uh, uh, a, a few weeks ago and on a weekend and I wanted to pick his brain about what Nova Scotia should be doing to become a tech center to, well, and, and frankly, we are a tech center, but to become a, a, a world leading as opposed to just a world-class center for research, development, commercialization, startups, and scale-ups. And uh, as I tried to talk to him about things that I thought would be the right focus, like tax credits or incentives or, innovation policy. He had just read those uh, McLean's and Toronto Star and Globe articles about everyone wanting to move to Nova Scotia. And uh, he told me, he said, Scott, he said, I know tech, but he said, I also know real estate. He said, I own thousands of apartments uh, all over the U.S. I own uh, Celtic Lodge in Cape Breton. He said, I know real estate too. And he said, in my opinion, your focus if you want to Nova Scotia to lead in, in tech and, and, and digital and all that stuff, you got to pick places for people to live. And, and so he said, if I were you, he said, the first thing I would do is focus on, on, on bringing people in, but also on the housing side of this. There is a huge opportunity for you for housing in Nova Scotia. And, uh, I was really uh, happy to see the and, and interested in and 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 uh, impressed by the recent report on affordable housing that came out from that commission that the premier had appointed. Uh, I thought it was very practical. Uh, I thought that it it quite rightly identified both the need but also the uh, imperative of including the private sector as part of the solution. The problem with housing in some ways is how people look at it. You've got one group of people who look at housing as a social policy and then another group of people who look at it as a business and they're both right. So if you put the two of them together, you can actually address the housing crisis sustainably. But if you have all the people who view it as a, as a social policy over here in one room and all the people view it as a business over there, you're not going to get, you're not going to fix it. So I think we actually have some foundational work where, um, uh, uh, to do, but I actually believe one of our opportunities. Uh, so, so this is Don, where we have a problem, uh, in that 
if we don't act, I actually think this is going to be a bottleneck to growth for Nova Scotia. If we don't have a proactive housing as a strategic growth sector policy, uh, it's going to be a, a limit to our growth. If we do act, not only can it take the cork out of the bottle in terms of our growth, but it can also create an awful lot of great jobs right across Nova Scotia. So if we call something a strategic growth sector, generally that means we align public policy, all levels of government, to, to create the conditions for growth in that sector. So, so in Nova Scotia, that would mean working with municipalities, starting with Halifax uh, and all municipalities, to streamline the regulatory and permitting process to create more certainty, to create a service-oriented focus so that building inspectors and, and, and uh, approval processes and that kind of thing are actually incented to approve uh, in a timely manner uh, that, that, in fact, there is a service standard to it, that uh, there is predictability uh, and that we actually encourage growth. Uh, and if we do that and actually continue to uh, work to proactively attract new people to Nova Scotia to invest and, and grow, um, then I think we have a, a tremendous opportunity to create jobs in all kinds of housing, from multifamily residential to single family to modular and I, I have a great uh, enthusiasm for the modular housing um, and companies like the Shaw Group uh, are, do, are doing some interesting things there. Um, but we can also maintain what is a key advantage for us as a tech startup center, and that is affordability. Uh, we run the risk of losing that if we don't get ahead of this. Other jurisdictions, Toronto, uh, as an example, Vancouver, they didn't get ahead of this. Uh, Nova Scotia can. We should, and in my view, we must. Right. Well, it's a problem right across the, the Maritimes at the moment, as you know. Um, let's just move on to another topic here. Um, despite the efforts of a multitude of economic agencies at the federal, provincial, and municipal levels, Overall economic growth as measured by net new jobs and GDP growth in Nova Scotia has consistently trailed the national averages. I recently wrote a column about this underperformance. What in your opinion needs to be done to improve the performance of the various economic development agencies at work in Nova Scotia? Uh, thanks, Don. And thanks for your, your column as well and contribution with that, which laid out some of the challenge historically on this. I think in some ways, um, the agencies, and particularly when it comes to innovation and the more recent, like in the last several years, if you look at the Ocean Supercluster or the Ocean Frontier Institute or Cove or Volt, Volta, um, uh, all these entities that were established under uh, federal, provincial, um, and, and business, business partnership in recent years to turbocharge innovation in our region uh, around ocean sciences, as an example, which is an area where we have a, 
a real comparative advantage ha having one of the greatest critical masses of ocean research anywhere in the world in, in Halifax. Um, if you look at that, uh, a lot of that work, that deliberate work, I think actually provide con some conditions for success today. So, so I think in some ways that, that work more recently that was focused on innovation and foundational work has been more successful than the ones in the past where we just focused on the big bang, getting a company in and providing some short term incentives. Effectively, where we used to compete, uh, sort of beggar thy neighbor policies where we were competing with other jurisdictions, uh, treasuries um, in Canada and the US to see who could give the company the most incentives to come in. Um, I think that was, um, you know, was probably not the most effective long-term approach. However, it had some real successes. But the the foundational change we've had, Don, I mentioned the COVID impact earlier. Um, previous industrial revolutions uh, have not necessarily worked in our advantage. I mean, when when the success of a jurisdiction was largely driven or defined by um, the size of its domestic market in terms of economies of scale, when, com when companies were producing widgets uh, that you had to have a large market for or had to be close to the market uh, to, to succeed, uh, we weren't really that uh, great a place to produce the widgets in, in some ways. Uh, but when you're talking about a new economy, where actually the size of our domestic market isn't as important as the creativity and agility we can have in our business environment and government environment for startups and scale-ups, we're actually really well positioned. I asked Rob Niven about, uh, you know, C CEO of Carbon Cure about, you know, Halifax as a place to do a startup because he has done that and he and Jen Wagner, you know, I mean, they built Carbon Cure out of Nova Scotia, out of Dharma. And he said that there is no other jurisdiction he can think of anywhere globally that would have been as supportive as Halifax for a number of reasons. Uh, and it, it was because of the environment, the universities, the uh, collaboration with the private sector. I mean, the Shaw Group way back when, when he was starting up, Bert Friz Frizzell was there. They actually um, uh, uh, opened up their office or their, their warehouse and facilities and let them go at it and experiment. I mean, creating a living lab with one of Nova Scotia's largest uh, producers of precast stuff. I mean, that, that's the kind of community approach we have. I mean, we got people like John Risley and John, gee whiz, I, I, I don't even think John uh, probably knows how many startups he has helped support or, or um, nurture or how many entrepreneurs he's helped uh, mentor. Uh, and, 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 you know, we have a bunch of people like that. And we have, so I think today what we have, uh, uh, our size in the past was a disadvantage. I think today it's actually an advantage because we can be more agile. Now, I say we can be because um, that's our potential, but um, 
Government is not agile, typically. But the smaller the government, the more agile it ought to be. The problem in Nova Scotia, in some ways, is we're a smaller jurisdiction um, with, you know, the British Westminster system of government, which Im imposes its rigidity on uh, on decision making, uh, regardless of the size of the jurisdiction. So we've got to get the size of a startup with the corporate structure of IBM, uh, of a big company. So what companies have done, even big companies like IG, IBM, have actually consciously sought to become more agile and nimble in how they make decisions. Uh, a smaller jurisdiction like Nova Scotia can become a living lab for the development of ideas and public policy for the testing of those and the implementation of those. And we can all benefit from that, but we can also be a place where we can learn and, and actually be a place to, to showcase innovation in government and, and, and business. Premier Rankin uh, thinks this way. He, he, he's, he really likes the idea and, and, and of us becoming, upping our game in terms of innovation, particularly around clean tech. Um, right. And, and on yeah. clean tech, John, just on that point, I, 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 it may be slightly audacious, but it's, it's, it's totally attainable that we can say that we either are or can become the best place in the world to do a, a clean tech startup or scale up. We've got ag tech with companies like Trueleaf out of Perennia um, and the Dow um, Agricultural uh, College. Uh, we have <clears throat> uh, clean tech in, the, in the, the space of construction and building materials and decarbonization with Carbon Cure. You know, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos' groups have invested in them. They won the global um, X Prize for decarbonization. It's a it's it's a world leading company. We have ocean sciences uh, that is unparalleled. And the relationship between ocean sciences and tackling climate change is very strong. Uh, we have great digital capacity through our computer science uh, uh, pro uh, departments and our at Nova Scotian universities like Dalhousie. Um, and, uh, and Volta and a good commercialization environment with Creative Destruction Lab, CDL. And we have a multi-jurisdictional publicly traded electric, uh, electricity utility in Amera where we can actually come up with ideas and try it in Nova Scotia Power or Tampa or wherever. So you bring those things together. There's no other jurisdiction in the world that has all that. So this, right. this is time for us. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that we should go out and, and BS people and tell them that uh, we have, we can do something we can't. I actually think this has the advantage of being the truth uh, that we are uh, the best place to do a startup and scale up of a, of a clean tech uh, 
enterprise anywhere in the world. And, and if anybody tells me that we're missing part of that uh, uh, or missing an ingredient, uh, fine, Let, let's build that. Uh, Scott, we're uh, rapidly running out of uh, time today, but there's a couple of questions I really would like to get your opinion on before we, we conclude. Um, I think it's clear that uh, Halifax is doing well, both in terms of population growth and economic growth. Other regions of the province are, are in need of attention. Indeed, each year Halifax becomes a larger and larger percentage of the province's economy and population. What should be done to help other parts of the province outside of Halifax become more successful economically? Well, Don, this is an area where you've done a lot of work over and a lot of thinking over the years with your hub strategy. And I very much, uh, and I've always, I've been a fan of that approach, uh, a regional hub, community-based approach. I actually think that today we can even look at things like enterprise zones, um, and, uh, as, as part of that today, and, and that, that, that can be part of the discussion. The other thing I would add to it right now, and I would consider hub strategy with digital government transformation, um, the services that people depend on from government, uh, that used to be delivered through analog, uh, face-to-face -face, on the phone, uh, services that people thought were absolutely irreplaceable by digital have been replaced by digital. And uh, governments still operate like blockbuster video as opposed to Netflix. And you don't want to be a blockbuster um, government serving a Netflix citizenry. And that's what governments have kind of become. So I would add to your your hub strategy in terms of the face-to-face, -face, the interaction, which I think continues to be important. And, and, and I think we, Nova Scotia should lead in terms of digital government. I don't think um, we've ever had as much opportunity to reboot the relationship between citizens and government as we do with digital. And I would go further, I would actually say that we should move as a region on this. Um, when I was Minister of Digital Government in uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau's cabinet, we established the Government Digital Services Unit. We recruited Aaron Snow from D.C. He was Obama's, President Obama's uh, digital government czar who established the, the Government Digital Services Unit in D.C. We recruited uh, him to Ottawa. Uh, we need someone like that. Uh, and we, there's some good work done right now, but I'd love to see us tackle this as a region. There's no need for every government in Atlanta, Canada to develop a separate digital strategy. Uh, it speaks to, um, you know, a broader theme of, of my life in public service and representing Nova Scotia, Atlanta, Canada is we, we got to, do a lot more to work together as a region and digital government would be one way. Right. Uh, just a final comment on the uh, regional hubs that we've talked about in the past, Scott, and Ooh. the need to align economic development efforts to whatever these zones might be. What, in your opinion, are the main barriers to adopt this strategy in Nova Scotia? Um, I think 
I think that the the hub idea uh, makes an awful lot of sense. Um, I think we should try, you know, this is one of those areas where you don't have to do a monolithic approach uh, across the province. If you have one area, whether it's a Bridgewater or, you know, if you have one area or municipal government that says we want to do this, well, the province can be a, a partner in that. And, and that to me is, um, whenever there's a good idea and we're kind of waiting and waiting and waiting until the perfect conditions to move forward with some monolithic policy idea to roll it out and it's all going to be perfect. Companies don't really work like that. I, uh, or actually today they don't work like that. In, in general, they actually try things and see whether they work. That's the whole key to, um, that's why startups are, are you know, they, they, they just try stuff and if they work, then they expand the footprint of it and scale up in another area. So I, I, I'd like to see us try that. Uh, we would need to have, and this is where working with the premier and the government and municipalities, finding one where it has the best fit um, <clears throat> and, uh, and moving from there. I think the, the, mo I think there's a modernization in some ways, um, the hub idea in some ways can be modernized quite quickly um, with digital and, and also this idea of enterprise zones. I, and I haven't thought this through uh, fully, um, Don. Uh, and as you know, I want to have that conversation with you and, and Jevin McDonald, particularly, who's one of uh, Nova Scotia's uh, tech entrepreneurs who's on our growth council and has thinks about this quite a bit and others about how to bring the hub idea together with the enterprise zone idea. Um, and, and, and looking at this, I mean, physical location uh, is not necessarily going to define the quality of the service uh, as much as it used to. So you have to sort of figure out what, what, uh, what serving people uh, requires in today, not what it required required ten years ago. So we have to we have to think about some of these things. Even healthcare, um, if 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 a senior doesn't have to get into a car and be driven to an appointment, but can take the iPad that they use. Um, to play solitaire or, or watch uh, Netflix or to FaceTime with their, their grandkids. Increasingly, by the way, they're, they're all doing this. this. This myth that seniors don't do digital is exactly that. It's a, it's a myth. And most seniors today uh, are, are quite, are, are more digitally connected than public policymakers think they are. Um, and, and the reality is they may want to talk to their specialist uh, via a, a secure digital health link, you know, where they can have a conversation from the comfort and security of, of their own home instead of driving to a, uh, uh, an office somewhere and waiting in a line. So I, I think we have to consider the digital impact on every aspect of how we serve citizens, including healthcare and education. 
Well, uh, I just have one final question that I wanted to leave you with. Uh, when will the council complete its work and report back <clears throat> to the government with its recommendations, Scott? Well, we've already, um, there, there's two things. One is this is not a, it's not a sort of a finite uh, um, uh, beginning and end with a report or something like that. Um, we have already provided recommendations to the premier. In fact, he said to us he wanted recommendations in June or rather, no, he's, I'm sorry. He, he said to us in April, he wanted recommendations presented to him in May in terms of, and these are his words, uh, he said, quote, I want early deliverables, actionable items uh, in May. We, we fulfilled that mandate. We provided him with a set of recommendations, and he's, he's working on those now in, in terms of the, the uh, broader uh, government environment. Um, he, he seeks our advice on... Um, New, you know, I, I actually think the way it's working now is quite good in that uh, we're a bit of a sounding board, uh, which um, the members on our group are active in terms of reaching out to other people. Uh, Don, um, uh, I've been on the phone and I mean, you, you we've known each other for a while. Uh, I, I have no uh, hesitation to pick up the phone and call people and pick their brains on stuff. And we are being asked to provide advice to the government uh, um, frequently on certain uh, new ideas that are coming about. And we're working proactively to develop longer term ideas. Um, uh, and and we're, we're, uh, we're advancing that. So I, I, it'll end when the premier uh, ends it, uh, I suppose. Uh, but for now, I think it's working very well, uh, and we're just getting started. Um, what I really like about it, Don, is that it, it's, it is, and I, I've used the word agile a fair bit in this conversation, um, and I think it, the growth council uh, needs to be extremely agile in how we approach our work. Uh, I would not consider it, uh, in fact, I, 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 there will not be a report coming out of our council. Um, yeah. uh, I, that's, we, we have great uh, reports that give us a foundation uh, uh, of understanding of what the problems are and some of those opportunities. The One Nova Scotia uh, group and their work continues to benefit us. Uh, but this is separate from its specific ideas on how to grow our economy, including our rural economy. And Don, one idea that uh, I'll leave you with, um, in the last 15, 20 years, we've gone from a couple wineries in Nova Scotia to about 25. The biggest bottleneck to growth, well, bottleneck as it were, <laughs> uh, is is actually... Uh, not having enough Nova Scotian grapes. That is not for lack of the land. The problem is we're using the land for the wrong things. We've got thousands and thousands of acres of land in Nova Scotia that is actually really good for growing grapes. Uh, not to be too parochial, but along the hand shore where I live, if you drive between 
Windsor and Truro along Route 215, go through Knoll and Tenna Cape and Bramber and Chevery and all those world famous places, you will see uh, land along the Minus Basin that is incredible agricultural land that has the temperate influence of, of the Minus Basin. Now, at a time when uh, traditional wine places, whether, you know, uh, France and Italy, uh, California are facing real challenges producing whites and sparklings uh, wines because of climate change. And, and, and we actually uh, have been rendered in some ways by climate change more conducive to producing uh, those kinds of wines. And we see Benjamin Bridge and others producing world-class wines that's being served in three-star Michelin restaurants in Paris and London. So uh, we should combine, and I've talked to Keith Colwell about this, who's uh, uh, is, is Minister of Agriculture. We should combine digital uh, with, and agriculture and immigration policy. And the way this would work is uh, we would establish climate monitoring, uh, temperature, uh, soil, and wind and sun and all that stuff on arable land all through Nova Scotia. It would be reported in an open platform kind of open data uh, approach in real time. And after about a year or two, we would have the kind of data that if you're a wine producer anywhere in the world, you want to expand but face challenges where you do now, you would know exactly uh, in Nova Scotia what land was good for, for what you want to achieve. Um, and you, if you combine that cr uh, and cross-pollinate it with who owns that land, suddenly you have a market that works where the owner of the land suddenly knows what it's worth uh, because people are interested in buying it and paying what it's worth. And, uh, the, and, and the buyers, there's a, there is a market that can work because there's information, right? And the markets work when people have the right information. So all we have to do is give the world the right information and the market would work to develop our land. We could combine it with an immigration policy modeled after the Dutch immigration policy after World War II, which was the most successful wave of immigration to rural Nova Scotia in our history. And we could attract all kinds of people from those countries, uh, France, Portugal, Italy, Spain, have really huge secular economic challenges. Uh, and 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 a paucity. They don't have any affordable land. Uh, to, and we could actually make Nova Scotia one of the best New World locations anywhere uh, for grapes and wine. We've got the foundation. People like Hans Peter Stutz and others have done great work um, getting us to where we are now. We we could turbocharge. Scott, that's a that's a terrific idea. I really like, that's that's the kind of thinking that we definitely need in this province. And I want to I want to take a moment to thank you for uh, being on the Insights podcast today. It's been really a, an interesting conversation, and I hope that it helps advance the uh, you know the discussions that we're trying to do with this podcast about uh, economic development issues and uh, you know supporting greater prosperity for all parts of our region. Um, and good luck with the uh, Economic Growth Council. It's, uh, it's good to know that it's going to be an ongoing, continuing advisory group uh, to the government. I think it's really necessary. And uh, again, thanks a lot for being on the podcast today. 
Thanks, Don, and thanks. Uh, you you have been uh, uh, a source of ideas and uh, uh, and 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 have been catalyzing uh, ideas for a long time in 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 Nova Scotia and bringing uh, helping people in public life think differently about some of the challenges we face and the opportunities we have. And thank you for that. And uh, uh, thank you for what you're doing now with the podcast. That's great, Scott. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Liam Floyd helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back next week.